With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Oh, one more beer for me. Exile means quality. So savagely. Best beer in all the land. Brewed with a loving hand. From bottle, keg, or can. Exile Brewing. E-X-I-L-E. For me. E-X-I-L-E. Let's drink football. Enjoy your The H.N. Podcast, I'm John Miller, along with Steve Dace. Following Iowa's historic 63 to nothing win at Illinois, uh, the largest victory uh, in that series, the largest margin of victory in that series, the worst ever defeat in Illinois football history. Wouldn't call it an illustrious history, but they had some teams once upon a time. Uh, Kirk Ferentz joins an exclusive club, 150-win club. Amos Alonzo, Stagg, Woody Hayes, Bo Schembechler, and Joe Paterno, the other members uh, of people getting at least 150 wins as a Big Ten head coach. And uh, it doesn't necessarily put any wins back on the board that Iowa has lost closely uh, this year, Steve, but it was a a good weekend to to feel good about yourself. Well, let me me say this. From first, that's incredibly exclusive company to be mentioned in historically. And uh, from a career standpoint, I mean, I I remember working on the Des Moines Register Sports Desk the night Ferentz got hired. And uh, uh, the late Dave Stockdale, who was running this, was uh, the sports editor that night. And, uh, we had gotten a call from one of our beat writers, probably Randy Peterson, Rick Brown could have even been Mark Hansen back then telling us that uh, their sources were telling them it's going to be Kirk Ferentz. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dave hangs up the phone and tells everybody in the newsroom. All right. Hey, here's what we got. Here's what we're going with. I mean, that was 1999, right? Mm-hmm. Like January 1999. So 20 years ago, man. Wow. And, uh, I remember, and I was a real peon too back then. I had just gotten my very first ever beat covering the Des Moines Buccaneers junior hockey team. And Amy and I freaking celebrated like I'd won a Pulitzer that night when I got my first beat. So, I mean, I was low man on the sports writing totem pole. Um, I wouldn't even make my debut on the jock with Marty Terrell for like another nine months. And I just kind of remember lingering around watching the veterans talk about Kirk Ferenz and, Stockdale was a beat writer for Iowa back in those days in the early eighties. And he's like, I barely remember him. Like we had to go, you know, you had a Lexus Nexus back then, or you had to go back into like the actual files of the register to dig stuff up on this guy. Nobody knew anything at all. And uh, here we sit 20 years later and he is in some pretty exclusive company. And that's, uh, that's just a tremendous legacy for him for Iowa fans and for the program. Now I'm going to hit, this is like the old telegraphs. Stop. Stop. Okay. I'm going to stop there. 
Okay. That's part one. Now part two, separate conversation. Absolutely inexcusable that he's hitting that mark in the penultimate week of the season, given how good the team is and the schedule that's been played. And if I were an Iowa fan and I'm reading, they did this, they unleashed this guy. Well, they tried this. I, I, I'd be really royally pissed. Okay. I'd be like, first of all, it doesn't even count. Illinois historically has one of the worst defenses I've ever seen in our league. Second, why the hell didn't you do this against Wisconsin? Why the hell didn't you do it against Penn state? Why the hell didn't you do it against Purdue? Why the hell didn't you do it uh, against Northwestern? You know, maybe if we had just done it in one of those games, uh, particularly the Northwestern one, things might look a lot different right now. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm sure if, if, if what I'd be thinking if I were an Iowa fan is someday in, although maybe this basketball season looks like it will be different. We'll talk about that in a minute. So let me move a little further someday in like late March, early April. And I was out of the NCAA tournament and it's one of those days where it, you know, spring football just started, but you're not hearing any news and it's too cold to go outside and enjoy the spring and it's damp and it's melting. And you're kind of thinking, man, it feels like late October out here. I wish it was football season. Maybe that's the day. If I were an Iowa fan, I'd sit there and think, and really blessed to have Kirk as a coach. And I mean, that's an incredible legacy and hundred, I mean, he's an elite company in the history of, 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 you know, the granddaddy of all college football conferences. But today, if I were an Iowa fan, not telling, again, it's not my place to tell paying fans how to feel. I'm just saying if I were in that shoe in those shoes today, I'd be like, uh, hell to the no. And where the he- where in the H of hockey sticks was this when it mattered? Because I'm spending the gross domestic product of Botswana to be an Iowa fan. And um, I don't think we should have to wait uh, until we play historically the worst defense uh, since Francis P was a coach in, at Northwestern to ask myself, you know, uh, you know, where the hell was this stuff all season long? That's how I'd feel if I were an Iowa fan. Yeah, I think so. I think that I didn't really want to delve into that on Saturday after the game. But thinking more about it, not not really even thinking more about it, just basically turning a couple of days over, that's going to be the one that lingers. That's going to be the fingerprints for the 2018 Iowa football season when people look back on it and wonder what might have been. It's going to be one and even more frustrating what might have been. I mean, there are seasons like, you know, I, I guess the 2001, some fans are, you know, what might have been if Brad Banks had been in there. And I say they might have gone six and six instead of seven and five. But um, he just did not have command of the playbook. Maybe he only needed five or six plays. So that sort of a thing. What about, you know, Tim Dwight in 1997 and his underutilization? Then the Noah Fant thing is absolutely going to be the fingerprint memory for this season. And the look to have him be that, I think I read Scott Dockerman before the uh, before Scott Dockerman of the Athletic, before the Illinois game. I think Hawkinson had played 169 more snaps in Big Ten games than Noah Fant, and T.J. Hawkinson's an NFL tight end. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he, he is. I I said before the season began, he's the best all around tight end Iowa has, and this season has proven that in my opinion. But to have that many fewer snaps for Noah Fanth and TJ Hawkinson, when you can have both of those guys in the field so often, and it gives Iowa, it gives Iowa at least one mismatch in every single time you drop back to pass. 
I don't like the term inexcusable because I'm not in possession of all the facts. That's why, you know, when people say that's unacceptable, okay, if something's unacceptable, then what do we do? Fire everybody? I mean, to say something's unacceptable, there needs to be, you know, what's the solution? So I don't know. I don't know everything, but I do find it very interesting that the same week that all sorts of crap was raised within the media and certainly the fan base pursuant to Noah Snap's, the iniquities of his snap count, the next game he plays the first 25 snaps, something doesn't smell right. No, of course it doesn't. You know, and like I say to uh, elected officials in my day job, don't pee on me and tell me it's raining. Okay, you know, one of the reasons Kirk has been here long enough to get in that elite company and, you know, you and I have essentially been here to cover all of it to some degree. And and many of those years we covered it together with the exception of two. That doesn't mean there have been other Iowa teams that weren't disappointments, but the, there's really only two Iowa teams I can think of that at the end of the year, given the quality of the competition and the talent on the field, I can say definitively they underachieved. To me, underachievement is different than disappointment. The 06 team, um, or I'm sorry, the 05 team was a disappointment. But the reason it was a disappointment is because, you know, Drew Tate was hurt, never really got the timing down with his receivers. And uh, you're just, you know, you're talking about taking essentially the collegiate version of a franchise quarterback. Look what happened to Oklahoma the year that they had that happen to them with Sam Bradford. Okay. That's hard. So it's hard to come back from that. That was a disappointing season. I would not characterize it though, because of the reasons it was disappointing as an underachievement. 2009, no, 2010 is a clear underachievement. This would be the other one, I believe, is an underachievement because the things that cost Iowa to lose these games were almost entirely avoidable. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's the difference between a disappointing season. And that's where injuries or, you know, lucky breaks, you know, a guy makes a, you know, 250 yard field goals against you, you know, in a snowstorm that just, it's not your year sometimes. And, you know, the other team's got scholarship guys too. They're trying to win too. And, you know, these things aren't algorithms or formulas, they're games uh, between people. But when you directly are, are the ones making the mistakes and the decisions that cause the disappointment to occur, um, that to me is, is now where you cross over to an underachieving season. And, you know, when you have the margin for error at Iowa, you have, and you've really had probably, you, you've really had two of those, some may argue one or two more, but um, it, it, it really two for sure in 20 years, that's pretty darn good. The, the problem is though, Um, you also have to recognize every school in the big 10 does now that the league is so deep. The quality of the coaching is so improved. The upgrades in facilities league wide is so system systemic that you cannot afford to blow these opportunities because you're not really sure when they'll happen again. And I just even look at Ohio state. They are by far, uh, the top program in this conference over the last decade. Uh, nobody has a better recruiting base. Nobody has more money, not even Michigan. Nobody has better facilities. Uh, you look at all the advantages and everything they've had, and I, I bet you most Ohio State fans, it, let's say Urban Meyer leaves after this year, and they lose to Michigan on Saturday. 
if you would have told most Ohio State fans when he got the job heading into the 2012 season, and this first year they went 11-0, and if you'd have told them that he was going to win three Big Ten titles the whole time he was at Ohio State, they probably would have said what to you, John? Yeah. yeah. You're nuts. No way. Well, that's how many he's won, which actually, when you look at how deep and everything the league is, is actually really good. All right. And you can't share titles the way, you know, Michigan and Iowa did in 2004, for example. So, you know, multiple teams aren't getting trophies like they did most of our lives. There's, you know, 14 men enter and one man leaves, you know, first week of December every year. That's it. But that but that that I think speaks to the point I'm trying to make here is you just don't you, you cannot afford as many blown opportunities. You know, Michigan is very fortunate to get back to where they were two years ago when they, and with a little help of the guys in the striped shirts, blew that game in Columbus. But if they blow another one on Saturday with all the buildup and everything to it, there's no guarantee that they'll be able to get back there again because windows are closing fast. James Franklin was fired in September of 2016. He was Big Ten Coach of the Year at the end of the season. You know, a month and a half ago, you know, he was with three minutes to go against Ohio State. He looked like this was going to be the changing of the guard. Now they're eight and three. I mean, that's as we like to say in the social media world, life comes at you fast, bro. It is coming at everyone fast in this league right now. So when you have opportunities like Iowa had where you literally just pee a game down your leg against Wisconsin, and then you still get yourself in a position to control your own destiny in your own division, and, uh, and, and the team that you ultimately have to beat more than any other, you're getting them at home, and you don't win any of those games? I, I mean, I don't care if I'm an Iowa fan, what you did against Illinois. If anything, the fact you went out there and beat them by historical levels pisses me off all the more. Makes me feel like th- this was even more of an underachievement and a waste. At least that's how I would I would react if I were an Iowa fan. I think that, you know, I, I've mentioned Wisconsin envy through the years on this podcast, and and really the biggest envy I have for Wisconsin is when they've had the opportunity to advance their brand, when the table has appeared to be set for them, they've seized they've seized the opportunity and they've done it. Iowa. Exactly the opposite. Um, 2015 came out of nowhere. It was on the heels of a disappointing 2014 team. Um, 2010, incredible disappointment considering the talent that was on that team. Obviously, injuries really hurt that team a lot, a lot. But, you know, 1 through 22, to start the season, they were you know, arguably the best in the Big Ten. Um, 2005. Another disappointment where you start the season in the top 15 and you lose a couple of games. You lose, you're up double digits against Northwestern in the fourth quarter. You lose that one, et cetera. Every one of those instances, Iowa had the opportunity to advance the brand, and every single time they've fallen short. It's not to discount the great years like a, a 2000. You know, 2009, I would say, is the, is the one follow-through year. They were 9-3 and three in 08. They had gotten their quarterback thing situated a little bit earlier in the season. They could have had a nice little extra run there. 2009 actually delivered. So all but one year, in my opinion, when they had an opportunity to, 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 to really do something, they haven't. Wisconsin nearly has every time, and that's frustrating. You said it better than I could. Yeah. All right. Let's. If, if, if you win the game on Saturday against Illinois 27-10, 
you say to yourself if you're an Iowa fan, probably. Yeah. Maybe they're not that good. Maybe we're just not that good. And we kind of did the whole jihadic wing thing Dace used to rag us about, you know, 10 years ago on the radio. You went out there and gave them the worst damn loss. I don't care how bad a team is. When you're giving another Big Ten team their worst, and think about the fact that they are as bad as you think they are, and they've been getting their ass drilled all year, and you still gave them the worst drilling they've had. You you drilled them more than Penn State did. You drilled them more than anybody else did. So that, to me, even speaks more to we did not maximize the potential we had this season. And I don't think they did. No, they didn't. They clearly didn't. And I think that the fan decision is um, is front and center. Some people are wanting to tie in the decision not to play up, and that's a more snaps. He's been two times Big Ten Defensive Player of the Week, basically paying, you know, playing 40% of the snaps. But, you know, that there's a, there's a lot of talent along those lines. Not at his raw level, but uh, at any anyway. Yeah, and, and fans think, think stats prorate, right? Like yeah. fans are like, well, you know, he's got eight and a half sacks playing 40% of the snaps. So we played 80% of the snaps. I mean, now multiply that times two. Mr. Gumshoe, he'd have 17 sacks. Well, he'd also be getting uh, uh, clipped more, hit more, chipped more, more wear and tear. Diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah, that's something fans don't understand is is how physical it is down there. And one of the reasons he may have such a high sack or pressure to snap ratio is the depth they have gives him the luxury of being fresh down there more times than not. That, that just fans don't typically look at it that way, though. Indeed. Hey, what about Iowa basketball? A week ago, they were getting ready to go out to Madison Square Garden to take on Oregon and then either UConn or Syracuse. I think most people were probably leaning more towards uh, 0-2 as the most likely record coming out of that two-game soiree. Here they are beating Oregon, beating then number 13 Oregon, preseason Big 12 favorite Oregon by uh, eight or nine points and really, I mean, controlling most of that game. And then beating UConn handily, getting up double digits midway through the first half and, and never getting below that, I don't think. Again, maybe it got to nine early in the second. I can't recall. But really looking good, Steve. I used the word several times that I didn't use all of last year. This Iowa team looked tough. They played with the toughness about them, and that is not something we were able to say at any point in time last season. So I wa- I got a chance to watch about half the game against Oregon, and then I watched the entire game against UConn. And I've, I've had a chance to watch a lot of the teams in our league that have any hope, which it looks like right now it might be nine or ten teams in this league. Um, I mean, this November's non-conference is, is like been better than all of last year's non-conference in total was. Right. Now we've got the upcoming Big Ten ACC challenge, and that's always the real uh, test. But at the very least, we've learned the Big Ten's a lot better than the Big East, which it wasn't last year. So there's already progress. Uh, the two teams that have stood out to me the most, actually, my team's not one of them. I, I've kind of been insulted. Everybody is shocked. I mean, they were in the preseason top 25 and picked second in the league. I mean, I, I don't think people, th- I didn't think they'd give Villanova the worst loss in the history of their program at home. But I don't know why everybody's all shocked given what Michigan's accomplished. The teams that have actually really opened my eyes are Wisconsin and Iowa. And it's not even just the results, but it's the things I noticed last year I didn't like that I can see already were addressed. And, and they're the kinds of things that the coaches of both programs, how do I put this? Because I don't, I don't want this to be 
uh, a, a back ass word compliment. Um, you know, I don't mean it to be an insult. Let, let's say that they don't have the historical legacy or that and the gravitas to address these issues on their own unilaterally unless the players buy in. Does that, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Absolutely um, not. Made no sense. Oh, just, just take your uh, gloves off. Okay. They're not Gene Cady, Bob Knight, or right now the top coaches in our league, John Beeline, Tom Izzo, where they've earned a certain stature. When they say something to a team in April and May, you're like, yeah, coach, he knows, got to do it. So Greg Gard and, and Fran McCaffrey are, are good coaches, not great coaches. So they're guys that you're not, they're not going to be able to holistically address things with returning guys unless those guys really own that internally as a team, as players, buy in. It's going to be more of a give and take because you're not Shashevsky, You're not a coach of that magnitude. Okay, so the number one criticism that I had last year watching Wisconsin – was and again injuries can happen to you you know and they had a ton of them last year but you remember you and I talked about this in the bigger 10 podcast that looked like a church league team mm-hmm. i mean they they had, they had a lot of string bean guys guys that clearly you know you don't have to be talented to commit yourself to the strength and conditioning necessary to play in this league and they had numerous guys on the floor last year that looked like they ought to be playing y rec than in the big 10 and when I watched them against, um, oh, what's the game in the, in the, uh, uh, was, um, uh, the, uh, Xavier, the Xavier game. I could not believe how much more physically developed those guys were. So that's an initial sign that there's pride restored in that program. And it didn't leave with that great historical senior class. When I watched Iowa's team, I saw the same thing. I, in fact, I didn't realize that was Jordan Bohannon. I'm watching the game and I have the sound off because I'm listening to something on Sirius XM the, 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 against Oregon. And I'm like, man, that guy's really put together. And I realized it was, it was Bohannon. Um, Tyler Cook, it wasn't like, you know, um, he didn't look like, uh, you know, Rodney Dangerfield and back to school last year either, but there's a, whatever extra he had is gone. And I mean, he looks chiseled and he was already a terror around the rim. There's just no way to stop him, uh, from attacking it. Uh, if he's going to bring that level of tenacity and conditioning. And when I just looked at their team, compared to UConn and Oregon, both. I mean, I, if I didn't, if you just took the uniforms off, lined up the 10 guys and said, Hey, you know, which of these teams do you think is the best one? You would just look at them and I'd have picked Iowa. So that the toughness factor for Wisconsin, it really was, uh, their guys looked like they needed puberty. So the, the, the off season conditioning thing for them was almost a medical necessity for Iowa. I think it speaks to, um, the fact that, you know, we haven't really seen them in competitive basketball. What was it? March 1st when they got, uh, played Michigan in that last big 10 mm-hmm. tournament game. So over eight months. And I think you saw that those guys took what happened last year. The initial sign to see, did they take what went wrong seriously? 
is the commitment to your own, to what you can control as a player. What you can control as a player is your strength, your conditioning, your, you know, the time you put in to give the coaches the most of a canvas to develop. And it was very obvious what I watched this weekend or this past week. Yeah. This, this weekend that that had occurred. And, and I loved the, 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 the more overt commitment to the zone defense. You mm-hmm. and I talked about this last year too. You, you can't really dabble in it. You know, you can dabble in junk defenses, meaning a box in one here or a triangle in two here. You know, Jim Balvano was famous and when we were kids at NC state for that, but, a, but, a, a, you know, a zone defense is a little bit like a, a, a triple option offense in football. You can't really run it situationally because it, it changes the way you play on both ends of the field, you know? And so the same thing works with a zone defense in college basketball. If you're going to, if you're going to run the zone, then that plays into the kind of offense you are as well, because that makes it tougher to get, you know, loose balls on the offensive end and things of that nature. So, I mean, you need to commit to it culturally. You know, when we were kids, Judd Heathcote won a national championship with his own defense. Of course, it helps when you have Magic Johnson on your team. But, I mean, Jim Beheim and Syracuse have, have been to how many Final Fours? He's won a national championship. And they hit, three, they, they hit 12 three-pointers on UConn the night before Iowa played him, and UConn hit four playing the same two-three zones. Yes. Yes. So if, if it, if you commit to it as a lifestyle, then, um, it's so odd nowadays because a lot of teams aren't running it either. You'll see when you play Michigan later this year, I know and, and that, well, you know, they're a three point shooting team. They're much better at three point shooting off of a dribble drive. Michigan has struggled the last few years under John Beeline against his own defense. So you'll see that when you play them next year, you'll be or next uh, in, in, or yeah, it will be next year, just 2019. You're going to look at that and you're like, wow, man, Iowa is much better defending Michigan than the past couple of years. Well, you're playing a style of defense. Michigan doesn't see a lot and, and teams don't rotate the ball as much as they used to. And you and I've talked before that uh, you know, pretty much offense in college basketball nowadays is I run one initial set. And if it doesn't give me a good look, then I run a two-man game or a one-four if I've got a good point guard, right? That's pretty much every team right now. Real hard to do those last two things against a zone defense, all right? And so I, it does have its inherent weaknesses, but it's more than the lesser of two evils, particularly if the issue, the number one issue, you have, it doesn't correct effort on defense. And at times, Iowa's effort was poor last year. But it does help correct something Iowa can't fix, that even if the effort is there, Jordan Bohannon is never going to be a great on-the-ball defender because he doesn't have that kind of lateral quickness. So one way you mitigate that is you you take away most teams' ability to exploit it with a zone defense. The only thing is, you know, and you got to commit to it full-time, and it's clear this offseason they did that. So that's a good move by the coaches. Yeah, and Iowa, out of, that, out of a lot of zone, uh, is at nearly a plus eight in, in rebounding margin. They are leading the nation in free throws attempted and free throw attempts, and they're 27th in the nation in free throw percentage. So all of these things, I mean, those things are hard to, to replicate and continue through the season, but that toughness, that confidence they showed whenever, you know, Oregon and UConn were making their runs, Iowa did not mentally wilt. You mentioned a couple of guys in the body. Connor McCaffrey is well built. And yeah. I, I got to say this, Steve, I, I, you know, it's just two games. But the guards that Oregon has and the guards that UConn has are going to be much like the quickness level of the guards that Iowa will face in the Big Ten. Connor McCaffrey was every bit up to that challenge. And I, I am wrong again. 
on Iowa's guards. I didn't think he could do that. Two things before we close this out on Iowa. A, you've ragged on me for years for my uh, obsession with male body types and the eye test. Okay, am I am I making too much out of it? Because I I Not thought there were several extreme difficult. makeovers out there. No, you know you're right. I mean, Luca Garza, Ryan Creener, they, they and Iowa had commented several times the offseason that this was going to be an emphasis, the physical development, mm-hmm. and they absolutely did the work. You can tell for sure. Now, you mentioned Luca Garza. This is the last point I want to make. And I'm going to make one more Iowa-Michigan comparison. Forgive me. It's just because you guys pay me here and Michigan's my favorite team. They're the two teams I watch the most, so I can't I can't avoid comparing them. But what I see you have the potential to have um, is imagine if Mo Wagner had come back to Michigan this year. And, you know, Charles Matthews is a more polished player already than what we saw last year. We saw glimpses of it. Now, he is not the physical menace at the rim that Tyler Cook is. But when you have a big that can shoot that perimeter shot that forces the other team's bigs 20 feet from the basket, and and then you free up the Charles Matthews, Tyler Cooks of the world to uh, to to attack the rim off the bounce without a rim protector and a shot blocker there uh, because that you know that guy can hit four five six threes in a game that will that will decimate your opportunity to win if you're exchanging possessions threes for twos you have to respect it Michigan rode that all the way to the national championship game last year and with of course some excellent defense but um, that's a combination that is going to be very difficult for Big Ten teams to stop this year. I think, again, of my team, John Teske's a great defender around the rim, but Luca Garza is going to force him to go 15, 20 feet out away from the rim, which is going to make it harder for my guys to guard Tyler Cook attacking the basket. That's a huge advantage. And, you know, John Beeline's made a career out of this. Pitsnoggle at West Virginia um, Mo Wagner and other big men at Michigan. And what you're going to, for Iowa fans, you're going to see this with Luca Garza because the, the commitment he's made to body conditioning as well. And Mo Wagner had to do this too. It's why he didn't play much his very first year. Uh, but now that he can't, now that physically he's not an immediate defensive liability, that he's not the guy that the other team's big compensates by backing him down, but he can hold his water down there now with the extra, with the extra, uh, uh, you know, layers that he has. That's going to be an incredibly difficult matchup for teams in the Big Ten this year. Mark my words. Cook already to the line 32 times in four games. Connor McCaffrey second on Iowa's team at 29 throw attempt. That speaks to exactly what I'm saying. You have to respect the big guy beating you out there from three and you can't take everything away. And that absolutely that, that speaks already to what I'm, what I was just trying to describe. Well, we'll end there for Steve. I'm John. We'll talk to you soon.